Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a humid and wet morning here in the capital is Russell Hayworth. Russell is a business executive who was most recently CEO of Nominet, one of the world's largest top level domain registries and part of the UK's critical national infrastructure. Um, Russell, thank you for joining us on the programme and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Russell. And uh, today I did want to talk about sort of the ongoing COVID-19 situation a little bit. Um, It is the elephant in the room, of course, as we record this podcast in mid-July 2021. And I think it's very clear that what the pandemic has done is accelerate digital transformation, hasn't it? Indeed, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers 24th Annual Global CEO Survey actually showed that 77% of UK CEOs are planning to increase their investment in digital over the course of the next year. Now, this comes with its own set of challenges, doesn't it? And from your point of view, what are some of the key challenges that those business leaders should be aware of? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks very much. I think it is very topical at the moment. Uh, As you say, so many organisations, I would say large, medium, and and possibly small as well, are, are really looking at how they can shift their business models. Uh, it's a time where certainly the, the smaller end of the organizations have ne- perhaps never had to embrace how to digitally manage their supply chains or customer service. So I think uh, you know, right across the paradigm, uh, digital transformation is um, taking hold and it's become a necessity. I think the challenge is kind of where to start and how to get going. I mean, obviously, it's a very uh, broad field. Um, but it really starts with, um, I think, three elements. One is uh, big data. Um, two is around the elastic cloud computing. And then I would argue that three is around kind of the newer technologies around adopting artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, mm-hmm. and IoT. Uh, and, and, of course, if you're in uh, the areas where you, you need to attract talent, uh, to do that, then that's both hard to attract, hard to retain, and expensive. So it's not an easy journey uh, for any organization to uh, undertake digital transformation. I think the key is trying to be really focused on what parts of your business you're trying to transform and why. Yeah, exactly. And cloud computing, as you mentioned there, is becoming a real go-to solution, isn't it? And rather than simply reducing costs for businesses, it's now sort of helping businesses actually grow their revenue and it's becoming very popular. And so strategically to make that as effective as possible, one particular member of staff, a chief information officer, also chief technology officers as well, we should say, they're becoming more and more vital within businesses. And there is that talent retention issue in that area, isn't there? And I understand that when you were at Nominet, um, your own research unearthed a remarkable statistic that 
the average tenure of a chief information security officer is actually under two years. And that's shorter than a Premier League football manager. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the research that Nominet did was was really highlighting the challenge of uh, CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, being the, the lightning rod for everything that uh, is, is a challenge in an organization's security posture. And if you think about the, the, a number of vectors that an organization can be attacked uh, by, uh, then it really is broad and the, the risks are significant. And I think one of the challenges that we nominate certainly found in their research was that um, quite often the CISOs don't have a good relationship with the, the board. Um, they're quite often not on the board. And therefore, yeah, they are seen as a, um, a byproduct of the, the kind of further down the organization and somebody who's you know, really there to um, be not a kind of value add, but a, a defensive uh, element to the overall security posture. And yeah, to the extent that um, security really requires understanding the sector that they're in, and also the 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 people in the organisation. Um, I think having a CISO that's moving around every two years means that they don't build themselves into the culture of the organisation. They don't um, find it harder to establish uh, the relationships that they're going to need, not just in the technology functions, but around the business. And you know, I think one of the challenges CISOs have got is being seen as a value add in an organization as opposed to, you know, a kind of technical aspect to keep the firewall secure. You know, it's, it's a lot more um, embedded than that. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the cybersecurity risks now, which are obviously becoming more significant, um, uh, are where you've got organizations that, are, that really embrace CISOs and, and, and pull them in as part of their um, audit and compliance on the one hand, but equally as a business partner. And, and I think that business partnering to make sure that you know it's a team sport and it's not just down to one individual uh, is absolutely vital when you start to say, well, actually, as an organization, how do we keep the overall business as safe and as secure as possible given the number of vectors of attack um, uh, in an organization that really is a team sport and CISOs have got a vital role to play. They do and the way that they're treated as you mentioned there and sort of perceived by boards is one sort of factor that's causing this problem but I suppose something that exacerbates it is the fact that there's also a limited pool of talent to choose from when it comes to advanced digital skills because there is a well-documented skills gap in digital in this country so that's also something which has to be tackled, isn't it? And could also help alleviate the problem. Yeah, the challenge is it's not a quick fix. You know, mm. there's there's years of training to become, you know, um, uh, to really understand the technological train, the environment, and certainly when it comes to cybersecurity, you know, those skills uh, are hard to find. Um, 
a lot of the time it's a mixture of data and software and processes and you know understanding the industry and how to adapt the security posture for that particular industry so you could you know if you factor all those elements in the the challenge is to retool uh, people to take uh, uh, more digital skills on board and then deploy those in organizations, not critics. So, you know, definitely um, one of the challenges is is skills. I know there's an awful lot of organizations up and down the country that are looking at saying, well, actually, how can we look through uh, the challenge of skills through a different prism? And, you know, when it comes to things like bringing um, uh, more stay at home moms back to to the workplace, helping reskill um, how we can attract talent from uh, you know, a diverse range of backgrounds into tech and cybersecurity. Um, I think all of those elements are great and fantastic initiatives. It's just you know you can probably gather all of those will take some time to to ensure that the the skills gap, whether that's in cybersecurity or, or, or data science, mm. um, is bridged because it's right across the spectrum. And what you've got there is not just, as I mentioned earlier on, attracting people. Um, uh, it's also about keeping them as well and retaining them. And that requires a really strong employee value proposition as an organization uh, and something that, um, you know, every organization really needs to think about how they attract people. And you know, going back to the point around COVID, what we've seen is a significant shift now in people saying, well, actually, you know, part of my employee value proposition is I'm going to let uh, employees work par- partially or totally from home. And you know, that's a challenge that every organization is going to have to navigate over the course of the next couple of years because, you know, particularly on the technology side, mm. I think the the coders like to work from home, and they they they, they kind of value this um, environment where they've got a great deal of flexibility. So, you know, it, the question is: is that environment of flexible working a key part of the employee value proposition here to stay, or um, how organisations are going to adapt to that environment going forward? Absolutely. It's vital, isn't it? Because we saw so many sort of businesses that were maybe stuck in the old ways of completing their processes, having to move all of their systems online overnight. And it's made senior leaders within business really value technology more. And I think to sort of help value those sort of key strategic staff, those chief um, information security officers, for instance, do you think it's proper going forward that business executives should actually be learning about tech on the job as part of their roles because I suppose good decision making that relates to technology it needs a senior leadership team that might not of course know all the ins and outs but at least is relatively technically proficient and sort of understands the nature of the task at hand It's funny, I draw the parallel uh, when I was kind of getting into my professional career when uh, you know there's a finance and non-financial managers and that was the, the, the real push and everybody needs to understand the financials. Um, I draw a slight parallel from that to today where the same can be said for everybody in business that needs to understand the basics of 
technology. And I would say it's not just about the senior leadership team, although that's absolutely important. It extends to the board. And without um, uh, plugging <laughs> my, uh, my upcoming book uh, uh, too much, but you know, one of the things that I've been working on uh, is uh, a book and a series podcast, which is trying to shine a light on what skills uh, boards and senior leadership teams need to have from a technology perspective to help uh, ensure that there's a cohort of boards and leadership teams now that have a, the basic fundamentals of what the key elements of technology that they need to understand, ranging from you know, cloud to SaaS to data to cybersecurity. There's, there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I don't think that means they need to be experts, but they need to be proficient enough to understand what questions need to be asked as digital transformation uh, is an increasingly important and mm. uh, critical element of where organizations are and where they need to be over the course of the next 18, 24 uh, months or so. And boards do need to be technically proficient because when we think of implementing that transformative strategy, the change has to start from the top, doesn't it? And I understand there's a great example of that in um, Nominet when you were there, um, where there was a key performance indicator strategy that was implemented and that involved a 1000 day plan. And it was sort of 10 sprints of 100 days, wasn't it? And that was something that everybody within the business really bought into. Yeah, it was a way that I brought in uh, an organization that's trying to set a strategy, um, you know, we had a clear goal of trying to grow revenues um, uh, and trying to expand the business into new areas like cybersecurity. And, you know, without really mapping that out and getting people engaged in that vision um, uh, and putting some tangible metrics behind it, then I think that's challenging. And so what I did is develop the, I don't know how unique it is, but it's, it's, as you say, it's a thousand day plan broken down into 10 sprints of 100 days. And, you know, it, every 100 days we measured where we were going. Everybody in the organization had three objectives to make the boat go faster every 100 days. And it was a real way to get cadence into the business. So, you know, I think, you know, from a leadership standpoint, um, there's, there's three elements of what I would say is digital leadership. One is creating the right culture. Uh, so making sure that, you know, you've got values and there's a culture. And certainly, you know, what I believe is uh, important is creating an environment which is around uh, performance, collaboration, and fun, actually. Um, so the culture element's important. The second one is around clarity. And clarity is about where we want to go and why. And uh, and then the third element is that uh, cadence. And that's where the thousand day plan came in because we knew what we were trying to achieve at the end of the thousand days. But equally, you know, it's never a straight line and you always tack your way to the end. Uh, so every hundred days, we had to kind of wash up on what the good, bad and the ugly. And we also had uh, screens in the good old days when you could actually walk into the office. There were screens around the office and then the reception about what day we were on of that particular sprint and what sprint we were in. And the idea is just to make sure that every day is valued and we're trying to make progress uh, every day and measuring that uh, as we go. So I think that's one of the tools in the box, if you will, 
to uh, try and make sure that everybody's clear on where we're going, going and why, uh, but also there's a cadence and a measurement element for that so we can track our performance. I think it's so important, isn't it, that sort of culture that you talk about there, because especially for those people that are tuning in who may be sort of looking to start their own business or are sort of managing very young businesses, company culture is so, so important when it comes to leadership, isn't it? And instilling that culture of trust, of positivity, of making sure everybody knows what they're doing, it's it's vital. I mean, like business can't really survive without that. No, and also values, you know, so, um, yeah, the values that, that, that I adhere to are around um, collaboration, accountability, and, uh, you know, integrity. And so the, 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 there's a really strong symbiotic relationship, I think, between the culture you're trying to create uh, and the values that underpin that. Um, so there's a, there's a strong dynamic between the two, but uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Without a common set of values and a, and a culture that sometimes it's hard to define culture and, and it's hard to put your finger on uh, a particular culture, what works best and what doesn't. But I do think um, an organization that um, uh, has a strong feeling of what it feels like to work in an organization and, you know, at the end of the day, most tech businesses these days are you know, very, very reliant, 90% or more of the, of the, of the uh, product that they produce are, are from people who walk in and out the door uh, every day. And so we need to uh, ensure that they're, they're really engaged and they're clear about where, they, where the company's trying to go and, and why. And that, that is absolutely underpinned by a culture and it can be very different in every organization. But I think it's, mm-hmm. um, it's important to, to be quite explicit about the values and the culture comes from the values. Exactly. And an important part of every business moving forward from here into the post-COVID world, as we've discussed and established, is that digital transformation is going to be important. Now, it's implementing digital transformation that's the tough bit, isn't it? It's not just going to be a simple act of bringing in tech processes and more automation and then streamlining your business, making it more effective. It's about more how companies and firms and organizations can use technology to actually compete better within the marketplace, isn't it? And that's something that's going to be really important for business executives to remember during this period. Yeah, I think, you know, I draw the line uh, or the distinction between um, organizations that are trying to look for marginal gains. So, you know, using fast-paced platforms, uh, using the cloud and and trying to uh, improve uh, visibility, get better data to make better decisions. And there's a ton of SaaS-based platforms out there that that will help you do that. All of which are you know, reasonably priced and very flexible in terms of the um, uh, subscription models that are, that are behind that. And so, as depending on where you're trying to improve your processes or uh, improve your insights or increase efficiency. I, I, I'd be surprised if you can't find a SaaS-based product that may not be a perfect fit, but it's good enough uh, to begin with. Um, and then over time, you know, the, the other side of this is whether you're developing new products um, and you're not looking for just incre- incremental gains, you're looking for new products because that's the way the market's now gone. And, and you know, by using 
uh, cloud, you're able to shift your business model to provide more SaaS-based solutions so you don't have to have on-site installations and uh, and and go down that path. I mean, at Nominate, we, we developed the cybersecurity software um, and you know, some of that was on-prem, some of that was in the cloud. Uh, we bought a business that was uh, in the US that was a complete SaaS-based product. And, you know, we're able to uh, ensure that we're getting uh, quick deployment on customer sites and ease of migration uh, from, from one platform to, to the, the Cyglass platform. And so the, the reality is that um, uh, there are real kind of marginal gains by using SaaS and, and, and looking at how to improve performance or the complete pivots of a business model where you can develop your own SaaS platform and move your product away from um, being an on-prem uh, deployment to a SaaS-based platform and one that is easier to, uh, to maintain and, uh, and offer uh, different price points for, for customers along the way. And so I think to the extent you can use this period for uh, that innovation and use the uh, proliferation of uh, cloud-based technologies and uh, all of the opportunities that brings for a business. It would be, you know, Winston Churchill used to say that uh, never waste a good crisis because I mm-hmm. think if you're able to look at your organization and trying to say, well, actually, this is a moment in time where we can uh, start to look at transforming our own business because it improves customer service or we can look at using SaaS-based platforms to reduce cost. Uh, that seems, uh, from my experience, where most organizations are having at the moment. Yeah, and I think it's an important thing to consider, isn't it, that innovation and pivoting, we've seen it at an unprecedented scale over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, and now we're ready to sort of embrace technology, playing more of a role in our day-to-day working lives moving forward. And I do want to talk just a little bit about the future, Russell, before we wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time. Um, we briefly mentioned already that you have an upcoming book um, this year, um, which we've talked a little bit about. Um, but other than that, um, what is next for you now that the nominate days are over? And uh, what's sort of the next opportunity, if any, that you're eyeing up? And where do you see yourself this time next year as we hopefully move into a period of economic recovery? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the uh, the environment, certainly uh, my area of focus, which is sort of the intersect of technology and private equity. And so, um, you know, what I'm looking at doing is supporting private equity uh, businesses uh, and, and funds that are trying to acquire uh, technology uh, businesses and tech-enabled business services. So, yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities out there. Um, private equity uh, is gung-ho at the moment and trying to expand into uh, all sorts of tech-enabled business services. And so, you know, I think my future is very much in that realm where I can support the private equity uh, to find and execute on uh, deals and then run those once they are brought in-house. 
Sounds like plenty to be getting your teeth stuck into over the next few months, Russell. And I really wish you all the luck in the world in sort of getting into that market and really making a success of it. And um, I think as we sort of start to understand more about what kind of shape the economic recovery is taking as well, um, I'd love to welcome you back onto the programme just to catch up on the situation then and also just see how things are getting on with yourself as well, because I've really enjoyed having you join us on the programme today. And it's been a real eye opener talking all about the importance of technology in business moving forward. Yeah, well, thank you, and uh, I look forward to coming on and, uh, in six months, twelve months' time, and and giving you a perspective. It'll be interesting to see how everything has moved on over the course of the next couple of months. Uh, I think there's going to be a, an amazing amount of change, uh, and I can't wait for the look back on uh, on this podcast when we when we get to. Exactly right. And hopefully business leaders have really heeded the message and sort of brought about that sort of tech revolution in the right way within their own organisations. Russell, again, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And do take care and stay safe still with everything still going on, because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but I'm confident that better days are certainly ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I certainly hope so too. And uh, likewise, I was speaking on today's programme to Russell Hayworth and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed such a compelling interview about technology. Um, I'm the Leaders' Council podcast, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership and therefore we'll be joined next on the show by Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett. He will be discussing his take on the last 15 or so months with the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead as we move out of lockdown. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about 
more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.